Good morning. I do want to welcome you all here again this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if you're just with us today, I do want to let you know that we're in the middle of a series on spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts, and um, we're two messages into uh, four messages. Today is the third message in this series, and uh, we're going to take a little brief uh, recap, and uh, and I'll uh, also explain the the scheduling uh, slight adjustment, by the way. We did say it was three messages. That is what I said. Uh, however, we've added a fourth message, and I do thank our brothers for the graciousness in doing that. So, spiritual gifts. Uh, let's uh, run through this just briefly as to where we've been and, and uh, kind of what we've considered. So, uh, in uh, message number one, two weeks ago, we uh, considered a working definition of spiritual gifts. And that definition was this, spiritual gifts are supernatural abilities or special enablements sent from God by grace to maximize a Christian's spiritual service. Their end goals are the edification of the body and the glorification of God. That was message number one two weeks ago. And we went through that definition and broke it down and considered it part by part. Then last week, uh, we uh, considered... Uh, some key factors concerning the use of spiritual gifts. This was last week. We considered some key factors concerning the use of spiritual gifts. And uh, you may recall uh, that we broke up these factors into three uh, categories. Uh, the uh, motive, mindset, and metaphor. We started with the metaphor. And the metaphor was the body. The body is the metaphor given to us of the New Testament church, and it's critical in understanding spiritual gifts because the body illustrates to us things uh, such as unity and diversity and quantity and individuality and responsibility. So the body pictures this to us, and we considered this last week, these various factors uh, that the body illustrates for us that help us understand the New Testament church and the function of spiritual gifts in it. And then uh, we considered a mindset. The mindset was humility. This is the approach to the New Testament church. This is the approach to body life, the mindset by which we, we should be coming as we engage in the body of Christ and as we seek to use the gifts that God has given us, not in a spirit of pride, not in haughtiness, uh, not in boastfulness, but in a spirit of humility. This is the mindset. And uh, we looked at that uh, from uh, several passages, but specifically Romans 12, uh, verse 3, um, and where Paul says that he, doesn't, he wants each of you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And then, of course, Ephesians 4, we looked at that as well, and that really uh, uh, lays it down as far as humility, lowliness, and gentleness, forbearing with one another in love, and so forth. So, lastly, uh, last week we considered uh, the motive... Uh, behind it all. And uh, it's number one in our list. And I would certainly argue, I think the scriptures would argue that it is indeed number one when it comes to the principles and factors of the New Testament church, uh, of body life, so to speak, and of the use of spiritual gifts. It is number one. We don't want to miss this. So what we did last week was we kind of built up to charity, to love, um, and sad to say that we, I really kind of just dumped a lot on you in the last 10 minutes of a long day. And um, as I sat and thought about it, and also the Lord brought other influences into my life, I thought, you know, um, to take the most critical aspect of spiritual gifts, and it is, love is the most critical aspect of spiritual gifts, and to just kind of dump it in 10 final minutes of that message last week on a long day, uh, just felt an injustice. And so uh, what we're going to do and why we've added an, an additional message is because uh, today uh, we're going to take a look at love and we're going to reiterate some of the things, no doubt, that we talked about last week in that final 10 minutes, but I really didn't do a very good job in showing you these things from the scripture, and that's not good. So we want to look at some of the texts of scripture a little bit more closely. And um, I hope to flesh it out, so to speak, to give uh, more body 
uh, to uh, what we were talking about with love. And then, uh, not next week, because we'll have a visiting speaker, but the week after that, the last week of the year, in the will of the Lord, we will consider the spiritual gifts themselves. Um, so, uh, today, uh, we are going to consider uh, the, uh, uh, the factor of love, this key factor. And we're going to consider uh, this broken up into three parts. Three parts, love's importance. Uh, and in that, uh, we're going to ask the question or answer the question we trust, how important really is love? How important is it? I mean, can we function? Can we carry on uh, as a body, as a church, with lack of love? Uh, what does the scripture say about that? How important is love? Love's importance. Number two, love's ideal. And uh, the question here more so is what is love in the divine ideal? And I know we talked about this a little bit last week, but again, we're going to reiterate it and flush it out a little bit more. And then finally, love's imperative. And this we didn't get into at all last week, uh, but I, I suppose you could say we're going to be asking and answering the question, at least to some extent, what to do when our love is less than ideal. If there is a divine ideal for love, and I do believe there is, and I'm going to stress that as best as I can and show it to you from the scripture, what do we do when our love is less than ideal? So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. So first of all, love's importance. How important is love? Please turn to Romans chapter 12. This is what I did not do last week as we were just running through something at the very end and did not have uh, uh, the time to look at these texts. But I told you last week, I believe I said, that love is not only found in all four of the key texts on spiritual gifts. There are four key texts, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. And what I said last week was that love is not only present in each of the passages that are key to spiritual gifts, but it's primary. It's not only present, but it's primary. So first of all, Romans chapter 12. So verse 3 to 8 is spiritual gifts. And you can see that. We've looked at that a few times over the last couple weeks. But then look at verse 9. Again, we're thinking about love's importance. How important is it? Romans 12 verse 9 says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And then listen to this, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in this short text on love and again, this is key, critical, primary to spiritual gifts, is that uh, you may have heard that there are four Greek words that are translated love, in, uh, translated into English love. So four Greek words that are translated in the New Testament into love. And three of those four words are found here in verses 9 and 10 of Romans. The only one that's not found is eros, which is the more of the romantic type love, and that makes sense. But the other three, uh, agape, uh, phile, or philo, and storge, are all present, all of them. So however you take these words and, and kind of define them, Andrew helped us with that a little bit last week, However you may take these Greek words and, and kind of uh, identify the nuances within them, all three of them are present right here pertaining to my love for you and your love for me. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's one. Be kindly affectionate to one another. That's two. With brotherly love. That's three. Three of the four. And again, the only one that's not is Eros, the romantic love, and that makes sense because we're talking about brotherly love, love toward one another. All three out of four there. Okay, so that's Romans 12. And again, that's our first key passage on spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians, please, 1 Corinthians. And we did look at this briefly last week, very briefly. But I want to reread these verses because if there's one of the four that is most uh, uh, critical or most explicit... On love, it's this. Paul goes through 1 Corinthians 12 talking about spiritual gifts and body life and how the body functions together and all of that. 
And it's all important. We need to understand it. We need to study it. We need to be aware of what's going on there. But then we come to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. And I know it's a well-known passage, but Paul says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, he's saying all of the spiritual gifts, I could have all of them to the fullest degree, every bit of them, but uh, but have not love, the end of verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. He doesn't say that, he doesn't say your effectiveness is diminished. He, he doesn't say uh, 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 that it's lessened, but he says nothing, nothing. So important love is that Paul would use such words in 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, please turn there. This is the third of the four passages that are key to spiritual gifts in the New Testament, commonly identified as key passages to spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4. And you could say that love encompasses the spiritual giftedness of Ephesians chapter 4. Because verse uh, 1 and 2 says, I, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, Ephesians 4, 1, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. In love. And then again in verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 4, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In love. Not only present, but primary is what I'm arguing. Lastly, First Peter chapter 4. And we'll be doing some turning today. I suppose I should have said that already. First Peter chapter 4. And uh, verse 8 says this. And above all things, I'm going to repeat that. And above all things, this is now Peter speaking, not Paul, but Peter. Have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. And then he goes into the spiritual gifts. So the importance of love it is not only present, but primary in all of the texts on spiritual gifts. In fact, when we look at the scriptures as a whole, we find that love is not only present in the scriptures in general, in the Christian life in general, in the church in general, but it is primary, primary. Just in a word comparison, the word love is found 183 times in the New King James Version of the New Testament. The words believe and believing are found a total of 100, 145 times. The word hope is found a total of 60 times. The word love in the New Testament is found almost as many times as all of the other fruit of the Spirit combined. So there are nine fruit of the Spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and so forth. The word love is not only first in the list of spiritual gifts, and it is, but it's found uh, uh, stated almost as many times as all of the other fruit of the Spirit combined. The Lord Jesus would tell us in Matthew chapter 22 that the whole of the law hangs on one word. Think about that. 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. 365 negative commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Do not do this, do not do that. 248 positive commandments. You shall, you shall, you shall. You should do these things. 
613 commandments, all summed up in one word, love. Love for the Lord, love for one another. Paul agreed with this as well. In Romans 13 and verse 8, he said this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Listen to this. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. You say, well, that that can't be. 613 commandments. Summed up in one word. He He couldn't mean the whole law. Well, he says again in Galatians 5, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, In this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you believe that? That's incredible. The entirety of the Old Testament law summed up in one word. If we could just love the way that God loves, and I understand that's a tall order, if we could just love in the way that God has uh, has. laid out to us his divine ideal of love, we could fulfill the entirety of the law. Love is very, very important. But number two, love's ideal. Love's ideal. What really is love? And we talked about this a little bit last week, but let me reiterate and let me flesh this out a little bit more. And I'd only want you to see the importance of love but the ideal of love. It has been my experience. In fact, in preparing for this message, I went back and, hey, this is modern day, right? So I Googled and Googled and Googled. What is love? What is biblical love? What does God mean by love? All these different things. And I pull up all these different articles and there's some good and there's some not so good. But one thing that I find time and time again, this is my Belief, this is my opinion, I guess you could say, but I think the scriptures support it, is that there is an imbalanced, an imbalanced uh, proposal regarding love that takes God's divine ideal and throws it to one side and leaves out the other critical side. So what do I mean? Well, if you if you search like I did, you will find... Uh, things like this. Love is a choice. Love is a decision. Love is a verb, an action. Love is doing, not feeling, one person said. Though there is truth in some of these sentiments, if we just leave it there, I, I'm, I'm, I am fully persuaded that we are leaving love in a state that is far less than God's divine ideal that is far less than God's love for you, for me, for the world, for his son. There is some truth in each of those sentiments, but they're imbalanced if we don't balance them out. Let me give you a few statements that I found written in Christian articles, okay? And I'm not throwing stones, but I just want you to understand kind of why I'm approaching this in this way. Number one, This was fresh to me. The Lord spoke to me, gave me a a, a fresh understanding of his love, of who he is. But number two, not only was it fresh to me, but as I looked and I read, I'm seeing this over and over. Things like this. Godly love is all about moral character, how we act and treat other human beings. This is taken out of a, a an article written by a pastor, Christian article that pops up on Google. Um, I didn't go too far, just maybe a page or two into the results. This is imbalanced, is what I'm saying. Love is not so much a feeling as it is a verb, one person said. Therefore, love is simply what you do. This is what the person's saying. I'm saying this is imbalanced. I don't believe this is biblical. This is love, one person said. Love is selfless giving and without regard or respect to whether someone deserves it or not. I'm not saying there's no truth to it, but I'm saying it's imbalanced. One person said this. God says love is all about how you behave and treat other people. Imbalanced. 
imbalanced. Let me give you one more quote. Listen to this, and this was literally just within the first few results in Google, activechristianity.org. Listen to the way this is laid out. I'm saying this is imbalanced, okay? I'm, I'm not promoting this. I'm saying this is imbalanced, and I'm going to tell you why. The person said this, but how can Jesus command us to love people? It doesn't seem fair of Jesus to command us things that are outside of our control, like how we should feel towards others. And so he goes on to say, and I just took excerpts of it, In his severe frustration with this, he says, eventually I decided to talk to an older Christian whom I respect and trust a lot. And he says to him, no, no, you've got it all wrong. The love that Jesus is talking about isn't a feeling at all. It's just as much an action as all the other things he's telling you to do. You know what's written in 1 Corinthians first thir- uh, chapter 13, don't you? That's the chapter where the Apostle Paul describes what divine or godly love is. Notice he says, 1 Corinthians 13 is not the measurements of love or the marks of love, but actually the definition of love. Read it carefully. There isn't one single mention of a feeling there. So if you are, listen to this, if you are kind to people and good to them and don't envy them and you're not rude to them, then you love them. And it doesn't matter what your feelings tell you. Then in this, you are obeying Jesus's command totally and completely. I'm saying this is imbalanced, brothers and sisters. This is not God's love for you. It's not God's love for me. It's not God's love for the world. It's not God's love for his son. Listen to the way that he summarizes it. And I admit this is egregious. This is egregiously wrong, in my opinion. He says, I thanked this godly older brother with a bright smile, and I leave with a new hope within me. This is something I can do. I'm suggesting to you that what God is asking you to do is beyond you. It's outside of you. That there is a supernaturality to love that is beyond you. That if you reduce love to simply your behavior toward others, not only does it fly in the face of scripture, but you are taking what God wants to do through you in a supernatural way and you're reducing it to mere willpower, to mere actions. And I'm saying this is not biblical love. I hate to keep saying it, but if we're going to define love this way for you and I, We have to back up and define God's love this way. If I'm going to say that my love, what God to fulfill Jesus' commands totally, all I need to do is behave well to treat you well, that's it, and I fulfilled it totally, I have no choice but to back up and say, this is also the definition of God's love. Because Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So how can I define love by mere behavior, by mere actions, and not back up and start to think of God's love this way? It's tragic. Not to mention, I'll never be brought to the point that God wants me, to the point of surrender, bended knee, pleading for him to fill me with something that is outside of me. Instead, I will always be acting in my own willpower. Hey, I can do this. I can pretend like I love. That's what he's saying. Thank God I don't have to really love because I can't do that, but I sure can pretend it. I want to suggest to you that even if you think you can pretend it, your pretending will only last so long. That if there is no sincere love, no true love, it's all pretend, it's all an act, eventually your willpower will succumb to your heart's desires so that what's really within you, the affections, the desires of your heart will eventually overcome your willpower, the the things that you do. And even if that didn't happen, and that's not my main point, I'm not going to take time to try to to try to uh, uh, substantiate that. I'm just throwing it out there. But even if you could pretend your whole life that you loved, act and love when there is no love, this flies in the face of the scriptures. Why? Well, 
The Lord really loves. He really loves. And his desire is that you and I would really love. So I took you to Philippians last week. Please go to Philippians chapter 1 because I missed something. I, I gave you, I suppose you could say, the main thing, but there's something else that I need you to see. So Philippians chapter 1, in verse 8, I maybe belabored this too much last week, but it's so critical to me. Listen to what Paul says. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So I talked about that last week, that Paul is saying that the, the affection is this Greek word, splachon. I tried to do my best. The, the depths of who I am longs for you. The affection that Jesus has for you, I have for you, Paul is saying. But look at the next verse. And this is what I missed last week. And this I pray, Philippians 1 verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more. So stop right there for now. I know the verse goes on. What I see Paul doing is drawing a parallel a parallel between Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ, to then saying this, the parallel. And this I pray that your love would abound still more and more. So what he's doing is paralleling what he has, this great longing affection to the depths of his soul for these people, and he wants their love to abound in the same exact way. And he goes on to say, in knowledge and all discernment, I had some things on that. I'm not going to get into them at the moment because we're going to run out of time. But he does go on to say, abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And that's important as well. So I highlighted this word last week. And we see that, let's look at it for a moment. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. The way that Paul longed for these people with the very depths of who he is, his very soul, his King James, his bowels, the seed of affection, that deep, deep place within him is the same way that Jesus longed for the people around him. The same way that he was moved. He didn't just act, but he was moved. So listen to what Matthew 9 In verse 35 and 36 say, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. I want you to see that with your own eyes. He was moved with compassion for them. He didn't just act but he was actually moved with compassion. He had true mercy, true pity. There was a sincerity of the care within the heart of the Lord Jesus toward humanity, toward mankind. He had already healed many of them. He he had already fixed a lot of their problems, but still because of their spiritual condition, he was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. It's the same same Greek word, splachnisoma. Splachnisoma, for whatever that's worth. This is the word, to be moved with compassion. Luke chapter 10, we looked at it last week. The good Samaritan, when he saw this man by the road, he was moved with compassion. He had pity on the man. The same word is used in the parable of the unforgiving servant. I'm not going to look at it now, but Matthew 18, verse 27. When the servant comes to the master and says, Oh, master... You have to understand, I want to pay you, but I can't. I don't have it. The same word is used about this master that he looked on this man with pity. He was moved with compassion toward this man. Now, 1 John chapter 3, please. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 is a text that maybe at face value, you would say emphasizes the action of love, and it does to a certain degree. 
I want you to understand as we're looking at this. I am not saying that love is all a feeling. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that love is both action and affection. In God's divine ideal, when we look at God's love for us, for the world, for his son, there is action, but there is a true deep affection. There is sacrifice. There is servitude. The things that he did, we can't help but see the manifestations of God's love. But that there is also this deep, sincere care. There's a genuineness to it. So 1 John 3, I want to look at three verses and I want to point out one particular thing in each of the verses. So 1 John 3, verse 16 says this. By this, we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So here's a verse where you could just run to conclusions with. You could say, here it is. If I lay down my life for the brethren, then I love like God loves. But I want you to notice something first. By this, we underline this word, no love. This is how we know love. How do I know God loves me? Because he's manifested it. It's not specifically saying this is the love of God, but this is how we know love. Look at verse 17. And when the Lord showed this to me, I just, tears come to my eyes because there's no explanation for this other than that God's divine ideal of love is deeper than just action. It's more than just a duty, or if you want to call it a duty, and in a sense it is, it is the duty that that requires the inward affections and the outward actions. That's the point. Listen to verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, and listen to what it says, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Notice what it does not say. It does not say, or at least does not emphasize, Whoever has this world's goods and does not give them to his brother. It doesn't say that. But it says, whoever has this world's goods sees his brother in need like that good Samaritan and shuts up his heart from him. This is the same Greek word, splachnisoma. I'm doing my best. That the depths of who I am are not moved when I see my brother in need. My heart, this is the, this is what's wrong. Yes, I should do something about it, but first I should be moved by it. If my heart is shut up toward the world, if my heart is shut up toward you, toward my wife, toward my children, this is what needs to be addressed first. This is putting the cart before the horse or putting the horse before the cart, I think you could say. That this is what's primary. Listen to verse 18. And when the Lord showed me this again, I just say, thank you, Lord. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue. Don't just say that you love, but in deed. And sometimes we stop there and we say, well, here it is. Here it is. Do something. And if I do something, then I love. But the verse doesn't end there. It says this. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed, in doing something, yes, and in truth. And in reality, that I would truly, sincerely love you, love my wife, Love my children the way that God loves his son, loves me, loves the world. This is what is asked of us. This is what is asked of us. So you say, I can't do that. I can't do that. And there, by the way, there are so many other texts. If you want references, let me give them to you because we're going to run short on time again. Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Put on a heart splachon. Put on the depth of you, compassion, 
Clothe yourselves with compassion, Paul would say in Colossians 3.12. Ephesians 5, we read it, we know about it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her. And again, you could say, well, here it is. Give myself for her. That must mean I love her. But he goes on to say some other things that are very critical. You love her as you love your own body. Nourishing, cherishing. The same word that Paul would use about a mother with her infant child. This is how you're to love your wife. Yes, you lay down your life for her. That's the duty of it. That's the action of it. But in a way that's nourishing, cherishing, like like a mother does with her newborn child. Deep affection. Deep affection. We already read 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, love each other deeply, fervently, earnestly. 1 Peter 3, 8, if you want another one. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. That is sympathy. Suffering or feeling the like with another, that you're sympathetic. Love is brothers, it says. Be tender-hearted. Love is deeper than just action. It is deeper than just doing. But you say, I can't do that. Like that, I assume, young man in that article. Jesus is, the Lord is asking me to do something that I can't do. And he is. He is. So I mentioned it last week, but please turn to 1 John 4. 1 John 4. I am fully persuaded that God is asking you to do something that you in and of yourself can not do. Not toward one another, not toward the Lord, not even toward your own family, wife and children. I'm fully persuaded that God is asking you to do something that in and of yourself, hear me clearly, you cannot do. So 1 John 4, 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested. It was seen in this. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God is love. God has loved us. God has manifested his love toward us in the person of Jesus Christ. And you are to love one another. But again, you say, I, 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 I can't do that. That's outside of me. That's bigger than me. Look at what verse 16 says this. 1 John 4 and verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. First of all, you need to know and believe the love that God has for you. Do you know it? Do you believe it? What do you think about the love that God has for you? Is it cheapened? Is it down here? Or is it the ultimate expression, the ultimate reality and expression of love, which is what it is? The rest of 1 John 4, 16 says this, God is love. That is to say that God is the very source of love. His character is is love. Not your character, by the way, not my character, but God's very character is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So how will you love the way that you ought to love? How will you ever fulfill this divine ideal of love? Well, when you abide in God. And God abiding in you. First, to be born of God. If you're here today and you've never been born again, you have no chance. You have no shot. You must be born of God. You must know God. 
know his love, understand his love, and abide in him. Abide in his love. To be regularly, I'm going to say this as practically as possible, regularly on your knees with the word of God, understanding who is this God? How has he loved me? To what extent? What does his love look like? Oh, Lord, this is the sword of the Spirit. Work in my heart. I don't have it. I don't love the way that I ought to love. I don't, I'm not like the Lord Jesus in this way. When I see people in need, Lord, I'm not moved with compassion. Change me. Transform me. Through your word, through your spirit. This is what's necessary. And the wonderful thing about the Christian life, about sanctification, is this is God's promise to us. A new heart. A new heart. That the Lord will actually change. I'm not saying the flesh will go away. That's a whole other topic. I understand. We'll still battle with the flesh. But that the Lord would give us a new heart. And the closer we draw to Him, the more we abide in Him. Jude would say, keep yourselves in the love of God. I'm not pretending to know fully what that means, but just that I need to know his love. I need to understand it. I need to abide in it. I'll never be able to love apart from that. So, so spiritual giftedness is not spirituality. Spiritual giftedness is not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is spirituality. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. If I'm ever going to accomplish it, it's going to be that which the Spirit of God does within my heart through the sword of the Spirit, through my bended knee of surrender, where the Spirit of God brings about fruit within me. This is Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. This is the only way to love as the Lord loves. This, this is God's love. Let me read you a quote. God alone is the source of love. He poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. God's love then awakens a response in those who accept it. God loves through believers who act as channels for his love. They are branches who must abide in the vine if they are to have that love. That's John 15, by the way. The same thing that you see in 1 John 4 is the same thing you find in John 15. Abide, abide, apart from me, you have nothing. Very similar to the terminology of 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, you have nothing. If you don't abide in God, you don't abide in his love, you've got nothing. Once you have received God's love as his children, he expects us to love. In fact, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Jude urges his readers to keep themselves in the love of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. This is what the Lord is asking of you. Love of God is a response of the whole of the believer, heart, soul, mind, and strength to the whole of God. And Jesus serves as the believer's model. So let me say a word or two in closing regarding love's imperative. So that is love's ideal Affection, action, sincere care, uh, uh, sacrifice, servitude, two sides of the same coin. Don't get too imbalanced one way or the other. That is love. Love's imperative. Let me close by saying a word or two about this. Though I am fully persuaded that love's divine ideal goes much deeper than just action, yet I search in vain to find biblical freedom from the imperative, the command to love, 
when that which is deeper is lacking. I'm just going to say this again because this is my point in the last of our three titles today. Though I am fully persuaded that love's divine ideal goes much deeper than just action, yet I search in vain to find biblical freedom from the imperative, the command to love when that which is deeper is lacking. There is an imperative to love, a command to love that is present even if the divine ideal is not present so that we should continue to do what we ought to do even when what we ought to do is not what is within the depths of our heart. Do not use the lack of affection, the lack of sincere care as an excuse to not fulfill the commands of love. So the Lord Jesus would say in John 13, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Literally, we owe this to one another. So though the divine ideal and God's desire is that there would be sincere care, there would be true affection, there is yet also another side to the coin, which is that it is our ought to. It is what we ought to do, whether you could say we feel like it or not. You have no affection. You have no sincere care. You have no desire to love. Love anyway. Remember, love is both action and affection, both duty and desire. One writer said this, doing good things for people generously without any delight in the doing is only half of our duty, but it is half of our duty. I think I would basically agree with that. Do what you ought to do, whether the affection and sincere care is there or not. Yet don't forget Don't use a lack of affection, a lack of sincere care as an excuse to not fulfill the commands of love. Hear me loud and clear saying that. I agree with that. But use the lack of affection, the lack of sincere care as a reason to get down on your knees and plead with God to give you the heart that he wants you to have, the heart that he has for his son, for the world, for you and that he desires for you and I to have for one another. Last passage, Revelation 2. This is the last thing I'm going to say. And this is critical. We're closing here. Revelation 2. Many of you know this passage. You know where I'm going. Maybe someone's here today and you say, you know, that sounds nice. I mean, logical, maybe even biblical, but I think you're overemphasizing it, sir. With all due respect, I think you're overemphasizing this whole thing about love. I want you to consider something. That in Revelation chapter 2, we have one of those texts that if it were not in the Bible and were not stated so explicitly and so emphatically, I don't know that we would believe it. What we have in Revelation chapter 2 is a good church that grows cold in its love and because of its coldness in love will lose its testimony altogether. This is, I think, an appropriate summary of Revelation 2, 1 to 7. A good church, a good church, I mean it, but a good church that grows cold in its love and because of its coldness in love will lose its testimony altogether. This is God's word. You may think I'm overemphasizing it. Maybe this is God's word. To the angel, Revelation 2 and verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this, these things says he who holds the seven stars. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. Jesus is actually saying this. Verse 2, I know your works. Hey, church at Ephesus, I know your works. I know your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. You have persevered. You have patience. You have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. This is a good church, a church that has many good attributes. 
it is acting in a way that appears very godly. And in a sense, it is. But listen to what the Lord Jesus says. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You're doing lots of good things, Church of Ephesus. You're doing lots of good things. You're a good church. You're persevering. You have patience. You're laboring for my name's sake. But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. So you read that and you say, well, that's sad, I guess. But at least they're a good church. At least they're doing lots of good things for the Lord, for his name's sake. I'm sure it's not that big of a deal for love to grow cold, is it? Verse 5 says this, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Repent of what? Repent of your coldness of heart, of your lack of love. I believe that's accurate to say. That's not what the verse says, but that's accurate. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, I'm willingly saying if the Lord had not stated this so emphatically, so explicitly, I might not believe that this is his perception of a good church that's grown cold in love. But he's saying you will actually lose your testimony altogether. No church at Ephesus anymore, brothers and sisters. I don't think they repented. Coldness of heart, coldness and love, doing good things, but cold and love. May the Lord help us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. And it is so great. Amazing love. As we look and see the manner of love that you have bestowed upon us, we are confounded. We're dumbfounded. We can hardly take it in. And the fact that you have loved us in such a way, is, is, is an ex, you have expressed it to us in such a way that is incredible, that you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die at Calvary's cross for us. Help us, O oh God, as you have asked us to love one another, to love our wives, to love our children, to love the world in the way that you do, to love you in this way. Help us, O oh God, we pray. We need you to work in our hearts by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.